I'm Jackson Licka, and welcome to this episode of our 2016 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, The Do's and Don'ts of Fertilizer Banding, is being brought to you by BlueJet. This is your first time joining us. I would encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, make sure to let us know. We'll make every effort to get it added as well. And subscribing will allow you to get alerts when future episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to BlueJet for sponsoring today's episode. For more than four decades, BlueJet has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found BlueJet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, BlueJet's Strip Tracker was the first strip till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu-jet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. Well, fertilizer application flexibility is often cited as a key advantage of a strip-till system, but deciding when, what, and how much to apply can be dependent on a variety of factors. Soil conditions, climate, and time are three variables that influence application windows. Understanding how to navigate through those challenges to maximize nutrient uptake and minimize loss can dramatically impact yield. As one of the leading researchers on fertility placement, Purdue University agronomy professor Tony Vine understands, as well as anyone, the comparative benefits of banded fertilizer applications in different tillage systems. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by BlueJet, we welcome Tony in to share results of recent fertilizer application research and discuss considerations and cautions for developing a practical nutrient management plan in Strip-Till. The question of fertility is perhaps the, and where, and when, and how much, and what, um, uh, all of those questions around strip tillage are the biggest question and the most difficult part of the strip till story to answer. And so you'll find even in probably your visits um, around the, uh, um, equipment companies that uh, were displaying their products today, as well as some equipment companies that are not represented here on Strip-Till, varying answers. And the answers will vary from, you can put all of your nitrogen down at the time of spring strip tillage to you should be careful. And then there are companies that will say, well, if you uh, buy our system, then you can afford to shave your phosphorus and potassium rates because of the efficiency that you gain with zone banded placement. And then other companies will say, well, no, you can't really do that because in the long run, um, crop removal needs to be replaced in the soil. 
and you can't go down the road of essentially applying less nutrients than what the uh, crop requirement at 200 bushel corn, let's say, and 50 bushel soybean is over a five or 10 year period. And so there are numerous questions, and I would suppose that the area of strip tillage that I feel that the land-grant universities have not done a good job on is this whole area of fertility placement with different forms, rates, and times. And it's not necessarily their fault because finding money to do research in the fertility area of strip tillage is the most difficult challenge I've ever faced in my 30-year career. Um, and I've got a long ways to go. And I always have my handout, my handout to essentially say, you know, uh, more money, please. Because Purdue, like any other land-grant university, will give you an office and a telephone and a computer uh, and then they'll say, you go find the money for your help, for your students, et cetera. And so I've had um, an opportunity to do some research along the way, and there's a whole lot more research that I'd like to do. So I'd like to tell you a little bit of a story first. And the story first is essentially that whenever we talk about nutrient management in a strip-tail program, we're essentially talking about a, trying to meet a crop requirement. That crop requirement is changing today compared to what was the situation, let's say, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And so a lot of what we do in nutrient management is focused on um, looking at different um, hybrids and, um, and different rates and different timing. And, and we essentially do some of that in, let's, let's say, small plot research and some in, in much larger plot research. And we're doing that in order to understand what's different today about modern hybrids compared to hybrids of uh, 30 to 40 years ago. And probably the biggest question that comes up is essentially uh, how much more nitrogen do we need in modern hybrids uh, compared to hybrids of uh, 30 or 40 years ago. And uh, let's just say, if we're in a strip tillage program, can we essentially meet the needs of the corn nitrogen requirement entirely by a pre-plant application program, whether it's a fall pre-plant or a spring pre-plant? Um, that flies in the face of what's going on in the real world. And in the real world, what's happening is that a lot of farmers are uh, trying to get more nitrogen on in later applications and are even looking at the possible yield boost of essentially saying, okay, we're going to go after the V12 stage or the V14 stage, and we're going to put on some additional uh, nitrogen, as is shown here. Well, the only way to really tell the story in terms of meeting crop requirements is essentially to know when it is that the corn plant is taking up nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium. And so we've done that uh, with some very detailed work in the last uh, few years. We're not the only university that's done this. Uh, there's some research at Iowa State and also at the University of Illinois that's done this. And I'm essentially just going to uh, tell you a few numbers about our story where we essentially 
uh, take the corn um, uh, at various growth stages all the way up to maturity. We chop it, we separate um, stems and leaves and grain and, and try to figure out when it is that nutrients go into a plant and how much it actually takes to meet that corn demand. So, so the, the primary approach I'm going to take today is essentially one of trying to meet the corn plant uh, requirement. And I'll, perhaps I'll say a few words about soybeans as well. And so the essential story is, uh, is first of all, that you know, there's a progression. There's a progression in terms of dry weight. So here we are, we've got uh, nitrogen. What is the total amount of nitrogen that goes in, let's say, in the period going up to silking? Well, in this particular case, it was about 70%, uh, which meant that 30% of the nitrogen had to go in after flowering. Now, this is for a couple of modern hybrids uh, planted um, in six environments over a three-year period. This is phosphorus. Phosphorus, only 45% of the total phosphorus that went into the plant was in at flowering, which meant that 55% of the phosphorus had to go in after flowering. And this is probably one of the biggest surprises for us because when we think about P and K management, whether it's in a strip-tail program or whether it's in no-tail, we are always thinking in terms of early season phosphorus requirements. And early season is only the beginning of the story. Really what's needed is essentially uh, to look at how to meet the phosphorus requirements, not just early season, but late season. Because in fact, in modern corn, with uh, more stay green, uh, with better plant health, we're essentially taking up more nutrients later. The same thing is true with zinc. So again, the, the focus here is on, yes, you often consider zinc, let's say, with a starter program, um, and, but really what the, the bulk of the story in terms of zinc uptake occurs after flowering. Potassium, of course, it's a much different situation. So here, if you're thinking about a strip-tail program, um, and you think about when does the plant require most of the potassium, well, most of the potassium is required somewhere between the V5 stage over here, V10 up to V15 and R1. So essentially, 90% uh, of the total potassium that ever goes into a corn plant is already there by flowering time. So when you think of a strip-tail program with essentially uh, two nutrients, let's say phosphorus versus potassium, you need to be very aware of the fact that the placement can affect um, the uptake and that the uptake of these two nutrients is quite different in terms of its timing. And so when we think about where the roots are, where the uh, nutrients should be placed, we need to be very aware of the requirements um, of the corn plant over time. I want to come back to nitrogen now um, before going into P and K. So what is, this is one particular experiment, what is the average now? The average now for corn hybrids um, in terms of their nitrogen uptake is they, on average, they, they take about 30 to 40% of their nitrogen up after flowering. So that's the, the number that uh, we need to be aware of whenever we think about nitrogen form, nitrogen timing, and nitrogen placement um, in a strip-tail program. So the question I would like to start off today with in terms of um, you know, where we go is essentially, okay, should we be aiming for all of our nitrogen going on in a single application? As I said last night, it's by far and away the simplest management system to do because it's a single time. 
Um, and, and would the answer to that change if it were fall versus spring versus uh, something that you might put on uh, with the plant or at plant with, let's say, putting on UAN tanks in either a 3x3 three three or 4x4 um, four four or 5x5 five five kind of placement away from the row? And essentially, um, my answer to that is, is basically um, very much affected by uh, research that I did in the no-tail arena uh, in uh, about uh, seven or eight years ago now. And this was a program where we essentially uh, used um, an, uh, an RTK-guided tractor in a corn soybean program, and we um, adjusted these coulters on UAN application so that we were adding nitrogen at specific positions relative to where the corn row was, was planted. And then what we did was we used the same tractor to uh, pull a planter uh, with its rows right on top of this uh, nutrient application or right beside. In all cases in this research, we were essentially doing um, UAN banding at a um, four inch depth um, using those, those openers. And so uh, what, what sort of rates of nitrogen do we look at? First of all, we looked at nitrogen rates in terms of uh, 50, uh, 100, and 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre. What kind of row positions did we look at in the corn after we put that uh, UAN on just ahead of planting? There was only a day or, or two between the uh, UEN application and the planting. Well, we essentially looked at corn row positions of zero, five inches, and 10 inches to the side of the UEN band. So all of this was done in parallel applications. And then uh, we conducted this in uh, eight trials on various soils, loam, silty clay loam, um, silt loam, and so forth. And the critical part here is that all of the treatments received 200 pounds of nitrogen. So whether we started with 50 or whether we started with 100, we made sure that all of these treatments had exactly the same total of nitrogen rate. So if it had 50 early, it received 150 in terms of a side dress um, application. So what did we get? Well, that our um, soil that was kind of in the sandy loam category um, and especially with dry conditions after that uh, UAN deep banding or UAN banding just in the row area, we achieved some very disastrous results. So this is sort of the, uh, the line here. The same um, thing was observed um, in, in this situation at 100 pounds of nitrogen and a zero inch displacement versus let's say 100 pounds in this particular plot was 10 inches away. Although we had quite a few treatments that were also five inches away. Well, does that happen every year? No. And some of you in this room have probably applied pre-plant uh, nitrogen in a strip-tail program where you've put on 100% of your, of your needs. Um, you um, probably were in a situation where you applied it um, within a couple of days of planting because after all, uh, the calendar was marching on, uh, the soil conditions were fit, and uh, by golly, we got to plant. Well, I would submit to you that every time you do a pre-plant at the full rate, and especially when you, do, when you have very little time between that application and planting, that you're um, asking uh, for trouble. 
and you are uh, at, it's, it's like you're, you're accepting a big amount of risk. And so um, in, in this program then, we were able to show that, um, that with 50 pounds, 200, 100 pounds, and 200 pounds, that we were reducing our plant population with on-roll planting. And it's kind of interesting that the, um, there was a reduction in stand even at the 50 pound rate um, compared to five inches beside and 10 inches beside. Now, these are comfortable plant populations. We're up around 34,000, uh, 33,000. But it's kind of interesting that in this uh, location over a three-year period, we consistently lost stand when we were right on top of, the, um, of, of that UEN uh, rate at, um, at 50, 100, and 200. And the biggest reduction in stand going from, let's say, 34,000 down to 20,000 was with this 200-pound rate. So um, the bottom line on that is that you can lose major amounts of stand and uh, maybe it won't cost you in terms of yield when you get a minor reduction in stand of let's say a thousand plants per acre you're not going to notice a yield difference it's still yielded 200 bushels per acre um, but if you're talking about a reduction in stand from let's say 34,000 down to 20,000 that could easily cost you uh, 60 bushels of yield and so the, the bigger yield penalty is going to occur in a situation where you've got the high nitrogen rate and a, a very close proximity to where the seed row is. In other locations, uh, we didn't necessarily notice a reduction in stand, but what we noticed is a lot more uh, variability in individual plant growth. And I talked about uniformity last night, and that's a key concept with me. Um, we, we essentially have to manage our corn with a concept of no plant left behind. And no plant left behind is only going to occur if we, every plant has the same opportunity and in terms of nutrient and in terms of water access. Um, but that also means that we don't burn those individual plants. And that can happen um, at, let's say, high rates of nitrogen and very little displacement. So here's a situation where we had 200 pounds of of nitrogen, um, zero inch displacement. All the plants survived, but they're quite un uneven compared to this situation where we were uh, 10 inches away, uh, where there's a much, much more uniform uh, stand. The same number of plants, but very different in terms of their um, competition with each other. And so where are we at in terms of nitrogen recommendations for strip tail? First of all, 100% in the fall, uh, sure, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's ideal from a couple of standpoints. Number one would be the fact that uh, fall strip till gives you that expanded planting window in the spring, and especially on clay soils, is going to give you that opportunity from a physical point of view to enable earlier planting and uh, better seedbed conditions than you could on a heavy clay soil with, let's say, spring uh, strip till. But applying 100% of the nitrogen in the fall with the strip tail program is, even though it's a fantastic choice from a crop safety point of view, it's not a good choice from an environmental and a nitrogen efficiency point of view. And of course, it depends on where you are and just sort of what um, amount of rainfall you receive and how warm the soils are in the overwinter period. Um, but at least for the Eastern Corn Belt, we don't want to go in this direction. How about 100% spring pre-plant? 
Well, uh, first of all, I would say that it's dangerous at high rates, and that's especially true with um, anhydrous and urea, even more so than with uh, UEN. And secondly, I would say that it's more dangerous at shallow depths and when that nitrogen is placed directly below the row with little rainfall and little time between nitrogen application and planting. So in a way, if you're going to go at 100% pre-planting in a spring strip-tail program, you're accepting some risk. And that risk increases with sandy soils, that risk increases with little precipitation, uh, or little time between the nitrogen application and planting. And it's not just the planting date itself. Um, it's it's a basically a function because the radicals of the corn seedlings are the ones that affect, are affected. You know, it often has a lot to do with the uh, toxicity to the uh, radical roots, let's say, um, a couple days after, after the, um, or, or during the emergence um, period. And so where, where am I at currently in terms of where I'm at in my thinking about this is that even though from a field trip point of view, you'd like to put 100% of it on and be done with it. But from uh, the standpoint of a spring operation, especially when you think that there's a good chance that you're going to be planting on that field in five days or less, and especially in a situation where you're putting on, let's say, not just 140 pounds, but you're putting on 220 pounds, you have to think long and hard about the risk of putting all of that nitrogen on at that time. And so my own sort of safety net, you might say, <laughs> is to think about something in terms of 25 to 60% of the total intended rate as a spring preplant. <laughs> and then, even then, I think you, you need to think in terms of uh, nitrification inhibitors in order to um, keep <clears throat> um, a, a higher portion of that nitrogen available for later plant uptake. So even though we're talking spring nitrogen application, I think we still have an, uh, a requirement to think about the corn plant requirements, and we also have, to have a requirement really to think about keeping that nitrogen in a plant available form rather than having it um, go down through our tile drains and, and down, the, um, down to the Gulf of Mexico. We'll get right back to Tony's discussion, but I did want to again thank our sponsor, BlueJet, for making this program possible. For more than four decades, BlueJet has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found BlueJet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, BlueJet's Strip Tracker was the first strip-till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu-jet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. While reflecting on the discussion so far, one of the interesting comments Tony made was about managing corn fertilization with the mentality of no plant left behind and making sure that uptake and access is uniform across the field is critical 
and he broke down the pluses and minuses of making one-time nitrogen applications in either spring or fall. One point of emphasis was that strip tillers should consider a safety net with nitrogen applications to avoid the potential of fall runoff or spring seed burn. Let's jump back into the program now and hear more from Tony Vine on placement practices and rate considerations for phosphorus and potassium in a strip-till system. First thing is, the question that often comes up is should strip-till farmers ban 100% of their P and K requirements? A related question is, does the banding depth matter? And there are different companies represented in this room and at this conference. And so in some cases, you know, the approach is one of banding, let's say at, um, at, at six or eight inches. Another one is zone banding, where the, the emphasis is on trying to put it uh, mixed in closer to the surface. Um, in the early days of my own strip-tail research, I also looked at deep, very deep banding. And you sometimes have, see that approach that's also used when you're using inline rippers where you could possibly think of putting on very deep uh, applications of PRK. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about that. Um, we're also gonna talk about banding position. And uh, last night I alluded to the fact that I think it's a wrong approach to always enrich the same zone. Um, and I think that uh, there's something to be gained from moving that uh, banded position around a little bit, especially with uh, banding of uh, phosphorus, because of the fact that there is um, uh, a response often to a enrichment of the, of the um, nutrient concentrations in the entire soil rooting zone rather than in a, um, you know, in a narrow, narrow band. How should the soil sampling proceed once deep banding is used routinely? And uh, in the early days of strip-till adoption, farmers were very concerned about where they sampled because they recognized that they were uh, applying it deep. And then as time went by um, and, and strip-tail began to be used more and more, there was a sort of a recognition, well, number one, in the days before RTK, I, I don't really know where the previous bands were, but even after the days of RTK, um, it's getting a little bit complicated to think about um, you know, probing here versus there. And so um, th th there's some really legitimate questions that come up about that. And then the final one is basically, does deep banding mean lower rates can be used without yield loss um, in not just the short term, but in the long term? And that's, these are some of the, the big essential questions. How good are we are at, at the universities in answering these questions? I would say, you know, we're on, on our way, but we've got a long ways to go in terms of uh, giving you precisely the answers you need. Some of this, is, um, is only going to be um, solved, I think, with farmer and, um, and, and university cooperation. And the good news is that whenever you have RTK systems, it just makes on-farm research that much easier to do. But I would still argue that even if you've got the capability for doing RTK research um, and planning it ahead of time, I think we really need to put a focus 
um, not just on applying it and then measuring yield in the combine at the end. We need to think in terms of, okay, how can we learn from the system? Learning from the system means at least analyzing your soil at different depths to figure out just where is the PNK uh, that you've applied, for instance, at different depths or at different rates. And it also means understanding, did that P and K make it into the plant? And so there's a lot to be gained then from sort of a, an approach which is not just measure yield at the end, but sort of understand the system um, in terms of its, its response. First of all, I'll say that perhaps not all of you are strip-tailing with the idea of uh, P and K applications. And so um, the early research that we did especially was involved with just looking at uh, RTK uh, and strip-till without nutrient application. And I will, will say that uh, when we've done that, uh, we've essentially noticed that there's a lot of stratification that occurs in strip-till uh, compared to no-till. It's about, um, often about the same. So if you don't put on P and K, you can get um, a lot of stratification. So here there's a, about a, a three to one ratio between the top four inches and the bottom four inches in terms of nutrient stratification and the, uh, even with chisel plowing, you can have a two to one ratio between zero to four and four to eight on soil phosphorus concentrations. And the only one that's uniformly mixed is the moldboard plow, which is kind of what you would expect. Soil test K, same sort of thing. Um, a, a ratio here of, um, of two and a half to one on strip tail and a ratio of three to one almost on no-tail here at the bottom. Now, this is in a situation where all the P and K was broadcast. So, we can accept the story that if you are doing strip-tail and you're not putting on P and K in a band, then you will get stratification. But the stratification uh, will probably be more severe than it would be in a chisel plow program, um, but it won't be that much different than what's in a, in a no-tail program. And I think I'll skip uh, this one in the interest of time. I, sh I showed it yesterday. Okay, so strip-tail then is with intentional P and K banding is essentially the major question for us um, in, in the rest of this presentation. Okay, so the, um, the research that I did on this started about uh, 12 or 13 years ago um, using um, a Gandhi on a, um, a Case IH um, strip-tail rig and we essentially looked at putting on a two-year crop removal. Two-year crop removal was um, 88 pounds per acre of P2O5 and potassium at 115 uh, pounds per acre of actual potash. So uh, this is actual P2O5 and actual uh, potash. All uh, plots that we had we had received a uniform 2 by 2 starter of uh, 14 pounds nitrogen, 28 pounds phosphorus, and 14 pounds um, uh, potassium. And the total nitrogen rate was 250 pounds per acre on this. So we applied um, different. Um, <coughs> we, we applied this um, in different depths to different hybrids at different plant densities. And again, a graduate student was, was involved in this research and did some fantastic work. Okay, so here we looked at broadcasting the P and K. Uh, shallow banding it, just applying it down to six inches, and then deep banding it at 12 inches, and then a shallow plus deep, where we put on 50% in the first pass at six inches, and then we came back and put it on at 12 inches to deep. Um, and essentially, the um, yield results 
Um, and I just told you not to look only at yield, but we did a lot of other measurements. But in the interest of time, I'll just focus a little bit on yield, um, was the fact that there was no yield response to control versus broadcast versus band at all in the first year. In the second year, there was a response to going deep, uh, 12 inches and 6 plus 12 inches compared to uh, the control. And in the third year, it didn't matter whether you put it on at 6 inches or 12 inches or whether you broadcast. But the key point I wanted to make here is that this is uh, three years of research from 2001 to 2003. And in none of those years did the um, banded, deep banded application yield more than the broadcast application for P and K. And so I'd just like to be a, a little bit, urge a little bit of caution here. Do not expect necessarily an increased efficiency with um, P and K banding in a strip tail program. And especially do not assume that you're always going to get an efficiency gain um, in this program. Now, to be fair, in this program, you have to remember that uh, these are our salt test P's, close to the critical level, uh, one year, um, higher than that. And this shows zero to four versus four to eight. But to be fair, in this program, every plot receives starter fertilizer application. So where I see an efficiency gain on banded uh, phosphorus application especially is in those situations where you're not applying starter with the planter. So if you're not applying starter with the planter, then yes, you can count on a, an efficiency gain in terms of uh, yield and in terms of phosphorus uptake, especially on low phosphorus or critical, close to the critical level phosphorus concentration soils with that banded application. But a gain in yield with that deeper banding is not automatic. Um, we continue the research with another graduate student, um, and this one we only focused on six inch, and we had two hybrids for a six year period, um, where we planted the corn every odd year here in this particular case, 2001, so this is the corn soybean rotation, one, three, five. Salt test levels around 20, uh, 1 to 22 in parts per million. And again, broadcast P and K and deep banded PK and the control. Yields around 225 and the broadcast came out on top. And there was no yield advantage for the deep banded P and K. And so this kind of stuff, you know, makes me think a lot. I went into this research with the expectation that the deep banding would increase yields. And in fact, what I uh, was disappointed to find was that the broadcast was doing as well or better. But understand, to be fair, I mean, every research that you do has, a, you know, is going to depend on what soil you do it on. It's going to depend on what fertility level in that soil you're doing it on. It's going to depend on how are you managing that uh, crop in terms of planting date and it may depend on things like hybrids. And that's why often in our studies we, we do multiple hybrids because we, we recognize that sometimes it can be a response or not a response depending on, on the genetics that, that you actually use. Um, in any case, one of the, the other factors is, is when you do start in a program where you're always deep banding, you're essentially trying to walk the line and trying to understand, okay, what does this do for my soil profile in the long term? And so this was just um, 
uh, a follow-up study in 2008 then, after these six years, and after six years of essentially doing a um, broadcast application versus, let's say, a deep-banded application, uh, what happened to the uh, soil phosphorus concentration in the row? And this is kind of what, what we found, that basically the broadcast application, we had higher uh, soil phosphorus in the row than we did with the deep-banded. The deep-banded, though, had an advantage at the four to eight-inch depths because that's where um, its phosphorus concentrations were higher than those in the broadcast. Now, this is in a situation where we always applied the phosphorus in the same, um, in the same zone using um, RTK. And so the, this is basically the mid-row position now. So in the mid-row position, this means between the um, corn rows, um, 15 inches away from the, from the corn row, we essentially had higher concentrations in the uh, broadcast um, than we did in the, in the deep band at both the zero to four inch depth as well as at the four to eight inch depth. So the story here essentially is that once you go in a, into a program of only deep banding, that's going to affect your near surface uh, phosphorus um, uh, concentrations and it'll also affect your near surface potassium applications, although to a lesser extent. And the reason why potassium is, is less affected by this broadcast versus banded placement is the fact that there is such a higher amount of potassium that goes into plants compared to uh, that of phosphorus. So where am I at in terms of initial recommendations on, um, on this story about the, some of the do's and the don'ts? I think we have severe nutrient stratification in no-till and strip-till, um, but it's also severe in chisel plowing. So in that respect, you know, we're a little bit more stratified, but not a lot more stratified. Number two, uh, soil testing depth makes a huge difference and should be consistent. And so I worry a lot about um, sampling, let's say, at seven inches one year, six inches another, and, and the depth to which you go needs to be very consistent. And I think there is something to be gained in terms of if we are zone applying things is actually just to uh, satisfy yourself that you're, uh, where are you essentially leaving those nutrients and how much are they enriching that zone compared to uh, the bulk soil between the, uh, the knife type applicators. Third is that um, deep banding and zone application of P and K don't consistently increase yields. They don't consistently increase whole plant nutrient uptake compared to broadcast. Even though from an environmental point of view, I would much rather have a, um, a banded phosphorus application than a broadcast um, application. And so, so we need to be thinking through um, these systems. I didn't talk a lot about my potassium research, but the potassium research is a little bit different than the phosphorus research in the sense that potassium research consistently shows a yield advantage for both corn and soybeans when you deep band potassium, especially on low testing potassium soils. So that the potassium story is a little bit easier than the phosphorus story, perhaps because it's more mobile and perhaps because um, of the fact that, um, that we tend to get uh, more potassium um, uptake with uh, new soybean root growth. And the start of fertilizer management um, is also important. So we go into a strip-tail program. We want to reduce the 
Um, cost of planters. We want to speed up planting. We want to eliminate starter application if we can at all. That makes a lot of sense and is one of the reasons why, you know, why, uh, why banding in the intended row zone uh, makes a huge uh, potential advantage. Um, but, I, but I want you to, um, to, to realize that, that we aren't necessarily um, going to be able to meet all of the um, nutrient requirements in that band alone. And that's why I think it's important to continue to look at sort of the optimum balance of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium and in, in, a, in, in a planting situation. There may still be, for instance, if you deep band P and K, there may still be an advantage for starter application of nitrogen in that system, especially if that P and K was put on in the fall before. And so um, arriving at the balance of nutrients um, in corn, and especially arriving at what's needed when, is, is something that, that I think uh, we need to continue to, to examine. And ultimately, what matters is where are the roots uh, relative to the available nutrients, how good is their function, and um, especially where are the roots when we go to progressively higher plant densities. As we go to higher plant densities, we know we're changing the root architecture, we know we're increasing the competition of plants with each other, and we know that um, we're also uh, moving towards higher late season uh, uptake of these, of these nutrients. And so I perhaps haven't answered all of the do's and the don'ts. Uh, the strongest don't uh, for me is, goes back to the nitrogen story. Do not apply 100% of your nitrogen needs in a spring pre-plant very close to planting, um, especially on, on sandy soils. But in terms of the banding of uh, P and K and where we go on this, uh, we've got, um, unfortunately, quite a bit more research to do. And we're not necessarily out of the woods yet, either from an environmental point of view or from a productivity point of view. And with nitrogen, we're never going to efficiently meet corn plant nitrogen needs with a single time application. Well, thank you, Tony, for your thoughtful analysis and advice on the advantages and considerations for banding nutrients in a strip-till system. An interesting takeaway for me from today's program is that the research Tony and the university conducted didn't necessarily reveal a definitive yield advantage with banded fertilizer applications. However, as was mentioned, increased yield isn't the only advantage to be gained with banded applications. Tony noted that this system can help minimize or eliminate the need for a starter package on the planter and help preserve long-term nutrient levels deeper in the soil profile. But as Tony explained during his closing remarks, it's important that strip tillers do their own evaluation and determine the right application method by weighing the benefits and drawbacks within their own system. Well, again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Blue Jet, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or call me 
at 262-777-2441. And once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or the Google Play Store, and this will allow you to get an alert when future episodes are released. And you can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. And finally, another reminder to mark your calendars to attend the fourth annual National Strip-Tillage Conference coming up on August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska. Look for more information and updates on the conference at www.striptillconference.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on December 7th for the next episode in our 2016 podcast series, Strip Tilling as a Journey, Not a Destination, where Minnesota farmer Dave Legvold will share experience from his nearly 40 years of strip till and how he's emphasized stewardship and sustainability within his system. For Tony Vine, Blue Jet, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening. <laughs>